in a Christian's worldview should be different than that of people who do not share our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That statement right there, faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins, that statement right there is a huge difference in worldview than from most people in the world. Most people feel that they can work their way into heaven or that they can earn merit with a God or gods in order to gain a better world, you know, after this death or after their death. But for us as Christians, we've come to the understanding from the Bible that we could never do enough. We could never earn our way into a better world after death. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 it states it as plainly as possible, and that's why you hear it so often, and so many of us know it by heart. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. It is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There you have it right there. It is not by works. It is not something you did. It's a gift from God. That is a huge way that we understand our world. That is a huge difference in the way that we understand what it means for us to gain access into the next world. And so here today, to sum up our previous four worldviews that we've gone over, is to live, by, to live our life to give the glory of God. Um, the next one was to live as an ambassador of God, to live as a steward of God, And then last time we talked about living our life to make other disciples, to make new disciples. To introduce this next topic, let me tell you about my week. So this week, we were in New York City. We took Deanna in New York City. She's visiting here from Illinois. We took her in New York City to see some of the sights and all and try and catch a little bit of Christmas. Now see, I really, 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 really love Christmas in the city. It is so great. We just thought she had to see this and all, and so... We're up there, and we're doing some, some subways and all. And along the subways, you see the typical things. Not all of them you can talk about in church. But some of them you can talk about in church. Was For instance, we were in, in the Times Square station one time when we were coming on our way back, and there was a lady there singing with her iPod, right? She had her iPod, a little, little amp there, a little, you know, and she was, had the music coming through there. And she was singing with it. That was pretty typical, isn't it? There was a, a violin player, player in another station. I think it was way downtown. There was a young dude playing drums on our train one time that was going uptown. And then after he got done, it was so kind of him because he came around and offered to hold some of our money in his hat. <laughs> then there was an older gentleman. We were, on the, once, we were at the station at 168th Street. We were going up into the Bronx to meet a friend. There was this, this train station here. Now, I took this photograph just because I liked the angle of it. We were walking. We had already done this during the day. Just true confession. Did you know that if you're on the wrong side of the platform, that you go the wrong direction? <laughs> we, I learned that. Here we are. We're going over to the right side of the platform. And we're standing over. And we're like, going, that's just a cool shot. I mean, like, there it is. Just this one person sitting there. I didn't pay any attention at all to the guy on the side, to that guy right there. See him there? I didn't see him at all when I took the photograph. And so we walk down the stairs, and we come there, and there's just the one dude standing there on the yellow stripe drinking his coffee, looking at me, taking a picture of him. And I didn't notice the dude with the circle around him. I didn't see the circle around him when I took the picture. (laughs) 
So we walk down there, and by the time we get down there, there's like maybe five or six of us. And by the time we get down the stairs and get to where he's at in that area there, he's begun to play. Um, he's begun to play, and you see he has a guitar. And you see he has a little bag in front of him. As we come down, he begins to play the guitar beautifully. Beautifully. And he's singing some song in Spanish. And it was really great. If you remember what the tunnel looked like there, the acoustics were really, really great. It was really a special little thing to have to wait on the train there and all. And Owen went, and we told Owen, go give the man money. And Owen wouldn't put it in the thing. Owen made the man stop and take it out of his hand. <laughs> but he did do that. The dude, the dude stopped to take the money and all. Well, there was a similar incident to this in January 2007 in a metro station in New York City where a man played his violin for everyone who passed by that morning. Now, if you know this story, don't ruin it, okay? He set himself up right next to the trash can near the shoe shine stand and not far from the bagel shop and the lottery ticket place where you buy your lottery. He was a young white dude. He was wearing jeans and a long sleeve shirt, and he had a ball cap on, had a W on it for the Nationals. And he placed at his feet just like this guy did here, a little box, and then he put a, a few dollars in it, some coins in it, just to make sure everyone understood that that's what you're supposed to do with it. And then he played six classical songs, Beethoven and everything, for 43 minutes. And in the next 43 minutes, 1,097 people passed him by. Only seven paused for longer than 60 seconds. In that 43 minutes, he made good money. He made $32.17. Three days before that, the same musician had played at the Boston Symphony where he, the cheap seats were $100 apiece. Two weeks after this, he played at the Bethesda, Maryland, um, in Bethesda, Maryland for a standing room only crowd. In all three instances, he was using a $3.5 million Stradivarius. The musician was Joshua Bell. If you follow classical music, you might know who he is. I admit, I don't. Sorry. If he was playing a fiddle and he had a country hat on, I might know who he was. But it doesn't look like that's his venue. He's a world-famous violinist. He was a four-year-old child prodigy. This is the picture of him at the train station that day. And this woman, I believe is correct, she is the only woman who recognized him out of the 43 minutes. She was the very last one in his very last song. And she finally stopped and listened. And, she, and then when he got done, she stood there and goes, I know who you are. I saw you playing at such, such event two weeks ago or something. This was an experiment done by uh, Gene Weingarten of the Washington Post. It's a great, great article. If you're interested in it, I can send you the link. It's very interesting. He takes it a different direction than we're going with it. Um, but of, of the over 1,000 people who walked by him, that was the only lady who knew him. Many others who were interviewed because there were people kind of stationed around and, and as people walked out of the area that they noticed, paid attention to him, they stopped up, they walked up to him and says, hi, we're from the Washington Post. We're doing an interview on how people commute. Can we give you a call? And then they would follow up with him. Many people said that they had no idea who he was. Um, some people said, you mean there was a violinist there? And if you listen to the video, it's really loud in the space, really loud. And, if, and many had said if they'd known who they're looking at, if they'd been informed, it would have made a huge difference in their reaction. And that's the moral of our story today. That's the moral for our purpose today, is that knowledge, knowing 
what is true about something makes a huge difference in how we interact with it and how we feel about it. For instance, what we know about heaven can make a huge difference about whether we're excited about it or not. That's our worldview for today, that we should live our life with heaven in mind. And what we believe about things, how we feel about them, determines how much we look forward to them, right? Let me just tell you something. Weeks ago, Owen started talking about Christmas, right, Owen? Yeah? And he's very excited about it. Matter of fact, he has a Christmas list that he has taped with many pieces of tape to the kitchen cabinet. And Aunt Donna came to the house the other day, and he brought her in and showed her the Christmas list. He's very excited about it because he understands there's things going to happen that morning. And he's going to talk about it for the next 29 days because he's excited about it. He knows it. What we believe about things, how we feel about them, whether we're excited about them, determines how much we look forward to them. But if we are misled or we're ill-informed about heaven, we won't be excited at all. One of the common ideas about heaven is that we'll just sit around and play the harp. Now, you might not be able to see this where you're at, but this is a cartoon written when, when Steve Jobs died. And I, and I liked it for a couple of reasons. It says up there, it says, he's looking at the harp, and he says, when was the last time this device was upgraded? It really needs to be more user-friendly. Who's in charge of innovation up here, and is this available in another color? You know. <laughs> now, that's cute. But what I want you to note is that the way they portrayed There's a few things that are built into this little cartoon that tell you a lot about what people believe about heaven. First of all, it tells you that everyone gets to go there. It just assumes that Steve is in heaven. Secondly, it tells you that everyone has halos and everyone has wings. And that those who have been there longer look really old. And that they're encased or they're floating or... There's something about clouds all around them. Now, if you just Google pics of heaven, this is not uncommon. Only the rest of them are really far more angelic and fluffy and, you know, and that weird kind of new age kind of art. But they all kind of include that we're going to be, that they have this idea about them that we're floating on a cloud and we're playing a harp. And I just got to tell you, if I have wings, I'm not floating on a cloud. You know what I mean? I'm using them because it seems like dull and boring to not be to have wings and not be using them. But the scripture doesn't tell us that at all. And this is an important point to pause on. There are numerous numerous books about people who have claimed to have gone to heaven and returned to earth. There are many many of those books. Heaven is for real. There's a whole list of them. Imagine heaven. Proof of heaven, heaven is for real, 90 minutes in heaven, my time in heaven, and someone even went to hell. And it didn't sell nearly as well as all the rest of them. These books have been given the name Heaven Tourism Books because it's people who went there and came back. Here's Todd Burpo's book about his boy, Heaven is for Real. A little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. USA Today has kind of captured a little bit of this kind of comment, and this comment that they make is pretty typical. Folks have been going to heaven with an amazing regularity lately. They look around, one even sat on Jesus' lap, and then they come back to report on the trip, and it's a very lucrative journey. This book here, this book here, is in the top 20 of best-selling books 
ever on Amazon. That means I sold a few. One of those books, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, yeah, he's admitted the whole thing was false, and he was just looking for attention. None of the rest have done that, and I wouldn't go so far as to even say that they're totally made up. But I would say this, is that if it happened, the way that we would know it's true is by comparing it to this. By comparing it to this. You know, back in the day, many years ago now, Frank Peretti wrote a bunch of books on spiritual warfare. You remember those? And it seemed to set the table for what we believed about spiritual warfare was supposed to be like. His books, This Present Darkness, Piercing the Darkness, they were great fictitious reading. But they were not inspired, nor were they intended to form our practice, our theology on angels and devils and spiritual warfare. And the same thing should be true for these books as well. The same thing should be true for these books as well. They might be interesting reading, but they are not this. And when we begin to take this and base our life on it, we are going to find that our lives are going to begin to skew off of what is true. We can hear a lot of things that people believe about funerals, about about heaven at funerals. I've read that pastors have never lied more than at funerals because no one wants to hear, well, it's too bad he didn't make the right choice in, in this life because he's sure burning in hell right now. I mean, you just don't get asked to do many funerals that way. You might not even finish the funeral if that's the kind of thing you say. Pastors try and be really nice, and they say all kinds of things. There was one particular funeral where I, it was a, a good friend of mine's father, and I knew the father, and I knew he was a contrary individual, is putting it nicely. Whew. He was a handful and he was a regular churchgoer at his church. And so when he died, I honestly went to just go and see what they were going to say about him. I was shocked at how well the pastor handled it. Because he just said, Bob, I don't know what his name was. Right? I'm just not going to say that. He said, hey, you know what? Bob was not an easy person. I'm like going, amen. Can I get an amen in here, somebody? He was not a nice guy. He was very difficult. And then he began to talk about his state in Christ. He went from stating lightly the truth about him, and then he went to some really solid truth about this is who he was in Christ, even though all this other stuff was true. And I thought that was the best funeral I've ever heard because he was blunt and honest without being demeaning. But you don't hear that very often. But what you do here all the time, and you can go on Facebook because Facebook is just a host right there with Wikipedia for being truth. You hear people say all the time, he's watching over you. Or I know he's right beside you for the rest of your life. Or then there's this. Nobody enters the door of heaven alone. Family members who passed along before appear just as you leave this world to hold your hand and to help guide you there help guide you home. There is a lot of fake news, as they call it these days, about heaven. And while all this stuff sounds nice, it is not true. I mean, some things are nice to say, but they're not always helpful. Saying these things that are not true do not help anyone. 
In other words, I don't know that the truth of the matter is the, is the right thing. When, you, when you're saying these things, when you're trying to do with this, sometimes the truth is the hardest thing to say because that kind of stuff makes people feel good, and that's what they want to hear. But it's just not always true. So what is the truth about heaven, and why should you and I be excited about it? First of all, just in the New Testament alone, truth, the heaven, word, talking about heaven, not the heavens, but heaven is used about 278 times. And then you begin to look at it, and these are some of the things we know about heaven. Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Mark 16, 9 says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So here's two things immediately. Heaven is this place where God lives, and Jesus is there with him. Those are two things immediately we know. And if you were to follow this a little bit further, you'd know that God created heaven. That is his place. He created it. And then, but there's even greater news about heaven, is that one day those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation, for their sins, will be there with him. John 14, 3 says, let not your hearts be troubled. This is a great, great verse for funerals, for for helping those who are grieving. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you will be also. Now that's a promise. That's truth about heaven. That Christ has, in a sense, has prepared a place for us. Randy Alcorn has done a lot of writing about heaven. And we've, studied, we've done some teaching about from his, some of his work is here at Crossing. And he says that Jesus used something that people understand because heaven is so difficult for us to wrap our heads around. And he said, so he took the metaphor of home. And he says, now, heaven is going to be like a home because people understand that and people want to go home. And he goes, and I built a home there and I built you a room in my home. And if I built a place for you, I'm going to come and get you and bring you home. Now, that's a great promise. So God says there's a heaven, and he's preparing a place to bring us there. And he's preparing a, to bring someone there. But who will be joining him in heaven? Well, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Catch, this is, this is it right here. This is, your, this is the key. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So who will be in heaven? Those who believe in Jesus as their Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. So one day, God will be joined by all those who have ever placed their faith in Christ for salvation. That is, all of those. But it's only those who place their faith in Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets into heaven except through me. Now, you need to understand this, that in all those cartoons and all, there's this thing where it always puts, they always have this pearly gates and the clouds and this individual who's an old man in wings and a halo and a book and this guy's standing there at the door and like going, I'm going to let you in. Let me look and see what you've done. And that's kind of the way it's portrayed. Let me see what you've done. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you arrive at those pearly gates, if that cartoon is true, it's too late. 
It doesn't matter what you've done at that point. Matter of fact, because that's not really the issue, but it doesn't matter at all about anything in your previous life at that point. If in this life, if in this moment today, if at some moment in your life, you've never stopped and said that I realize I'm a sinner and I can never do anything about my sin. And I believe that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. I'll take his death as my payment. I'll take him as my savior. I won't earn my way into heaven any longer because he's done it for me. That is what he means by no man comes to the Father except by believing in my death as the payment for your sin to get into heaven. Everyone's welcome, but not everyone chooses to go. But that's not all that Jesus said about heaven. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, that's a pretty important verse. If all that you want in this life is found here on earth, you'll never be excited or anxious or looking forward to the afterlife or heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul says in Colossians 3.1, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your, where your treasure is, there your heart is. But if we are totally ignorant of who the guy is playing the Stradivarius as we go through the station, we'll never be excited about him. We'll never pause and say, I am getting 43 minutes at a very discounted rate with a world-class violinist. You know what? I'll call in a little late today. I'm going to make this happen. This is really important. This is really special. Those who understood, which there were not only, there was only one, stayed. If we are rightly informed and then rightly excited about heaven, then we will find that this place bores us, that this place has little to offer us, that the things of this life pale in comparison to the next life. And we will slowly begin to transfer our affections from here to there. The parable is saying, or the the teaching that Christ says, is that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Pause. Quiz. Pop quiz. Pop quiz. Where is your treasure this morning? Where is your treasure this morning? Is it that you are more interested in what's happening in this life than you are in what you're going to get in the next life? Randy Alcorn recently did an editorial or a blog post, and he said, for Christians, a bucket list is a meaningless thing. Now, I think he over-spiritualized a little bit because I don't think there's anything wrong with having a list. I want to watch the Northern Lights in Iceland someday. That's not wrong to want to do something pretty cool. But his point was this, is that if everything that's important to you, if your bucket list is just in this life, then you've missed the point of the next life. He went on to say that Joni Erickson Tata, who's been in a wheelchair since she was in her late teens, and now she is in her later probably late 50s, she speaks about that on her bucket list is running through 
a meadow on the new earth with legs that work perfectly. Some of you have bucket lists that you wouldn't maybe say it like that, but you do. You have people you want to see. Some of you have bucket lists, people that are going to be in heaven that you want to see. Some of you have bucket lists that says, I want to go to heaven and not struggle anymore with this disease. I want to go to heaven and not struggle anymore with this pain. There's nothing wrong with that. That's probably the kind of bucket list that Randy's talking about. Jonathan Edwards says, It comes to us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or center our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? So you catch that? This life is only a journey to the next one. There's nothing to see here. Come on, people. Move along, move along, as they say. There's nothing to see here. Move along, folks. Because what's happening here should be really not important at all to what's going to happen there. Why should we labor? Why should we set our hearts on anything that's not going to make us absolutely fulfilled and truly happy? Which is what will happen when we arrive in heaven. There are several passages we can look to that <clears throat> help us to understand this a little bit better. Hebrews eleven sixteen. But they are looking for a better place. Now, you know Hebrews 11 probably. Hebrews 11 is this chapter about these heroes of faith. And it begins to talk about Abraham and Noah and all of these people of the Old Testament and their walk of faith. And here the writer of Hebrews says, but they are looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. And that is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So here we are. This is it. God has prepared a heavenly homeland for them. He's prepared a city for them. And we are also in that list now. We have had a heavenly homeland prepared for those. And we have a, a, as he says, a city being prepared for us. Romans 8, 18 and following says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later in that heavenly homeland. What we're suffering now is, never, is nothing compared to that. For all creation is eagerly waiting for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation is subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You see, you see what he's saying here is that you know what happened, he says. God created a perfect place. And then man in his sin, man in his rebellion, caused that perfect place to go in under God's curse. And it began to decay that very day. And he says, and so ever since then, the world has been like a woman in childbearing, is about to birth a child, who is waiting for that moment when all of the decay and all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of that will fade away to the new birth of a new place 
to being in heaven with the Father. That's what he's describing here in Romans 8. And we believers, verse 23, and we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and following. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not with human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies with new clothing, like new clothing. For we will put on our heavenly bodies, and we will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die or get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and we... And it, And as a guarantee, he has given us the Holy Spirit. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. Here, here, in the first passage, Paul says that in Romans. Here he is in Corinthians, writing to the church of Corinthians, and he's telling them the same thing. This, this thing that we have on us now, this body, this life, this suffering that we have will pass someday because we have this other thing that we get to be at home with the Lord. We have something we're waiting on. And so in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, and this is why we, we never give up, though our bodies are dying and our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, fix our gaze on things we cannot see. For the things we see will be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. It will happen in a moment. In the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown, from when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we will, who are living will also be transformed, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. So here you have Paul writing in so many different ways, in so many different places to these people, saying, we have great hope. What you're going through now is light and momentary. It does not compare to what is going to happen. So persevere. Don't get comfortable here. Don't think this is the best life now. There's a better life coming. Fix your gaze on that. Fix your hope on that. Because if you fix your hope on that, all of the brokenness of this life, all of the misplaced hope in this life, in relationships and money and sex and drugs and TV or whatever it is that you placed your hope in in this life, it will disappoint you. He says, we know that. So place your hope in the next life. First Peter says, because that hope in the next life, we live, First Peter 1, 3 and 4, we live with great expectation. 
And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept safe for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change or decay. What we have cannot be taken away from us. What we have coming to us can never be changed. It's not going to get worn out waiting for us. It's not going to change. It it's doesn't need an upgrade. He says, we now have great expectation. This place that is prepared for us, this undefiled hope of Peter, this city built for the saints in Hebrews, the glory of Romans 8, the new bodies of 2 Corinthians 5, the things that we cannot see in 2 Corinthians 4, all that will be revealed when the trumpet will be blown in 1 Corinthians 15. You, you go into Revelation, you begin to say, what are we talking about? And here in Revelation, the author does the very best they can to try and describe something that even they don't know understand how to describe it. And they don't know how to tell us about it. But here's what they say. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. Did you hear that? We have to grasp this. Is that Adam set us on a course of a curse that has broken down our body, has broken down our relationships. There's nothing, nothing at all in our life that has not been tainted by the curse of Adam. Nothing at all. We cannot escape it in these mortal bodies. And so here, John says... In, in this passage, John says this, and there will be no longer any curse. Amen. Amen, sister. That curse will be broken. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they will see his face. They will see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night, and there will no longer be any need for the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illuminate them, and they shall reign forever and ever. They will see his face. They are, he is talking about you and I. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Do you hear what he's saying? This one, this one we live in now, the one that was created perfect and then was defiled and broken and cursed and is decaying. This one, the first earth and the first heaven passed away. They're no longer. And I saw the, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death, and there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, and the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. Revelation 7, 9. And this 
After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count in every, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing in front of the throne before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great war, Salvation comes from our God, who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings, and they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshiped God. And they sang, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our, our God forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5, 9. And they sing a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood was ransomed people from God from every tribe, na- language, people, and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and all the living creatures, and all the living beings, the elders, and they sang a mighty chorus. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne, to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings kept saying, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. In these passages, in Revelation 21, 3, and in these passages just read, here we have, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. Heaven is going to be a great place, not because it's heaven, but because who's there? Because he has dwelt among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be there, and they will see his face, and he will wipe away every tear. And there'll be no more mourning, no more crying or pain. All that we seek in this life to fulfill us, to satisfy us, to occupy us, the stuff stuff that gets in the way of the life you want in this world will never be gone until the next world. All those things in this life are false. All the things that we seek to give us purpose, to give us happiness, The power, the comfortable home, the success, the fame, the reputation, the bank account, the great American dream will disappoint. It will fade to black. It will burn. It won't be anymore. And instead, we have What God is doing is he is redeeming. He is renewing. He is reconciling. He is regenerating. He is resurrecting. See, I make all things new. Revelation 21, verse 5. I make all things new. A new heaven, a new earth, all at the feet of God and our King that our hearts earnestly yearn for. If we really know and study and concentrate on all that heaven has to offer us, we'll be excited about it. It offers hope. It offers release and comfort, ultimate fulfillment, 
No more pain, no more sorrow, no more cancer, no more autism. Anything else that besets us in this life, it will be gone. And that is something to pause and to pay attention to in this life. To have hope in this life that's derived from the promises of the next one. Let's pray.